Thank you for the, for the welcome. They, uh, they say when, uh, they'll tell you in speech classes that the, uh, the more important a person is, the less you have to say about them. Uh, I normally get wiped out with long introductions. So appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I, I'm probably here on false pretenses to some degree because I, I'm going to be preaching at uh, Kwambatuk uh, Community Church in June. And so I, I imposed on Fred and said, would you come to Barham and preach? Well, I go to Kwambatuk and he said, yes. But he said, would you come to Kerrang and preach? And I said, well, all right, on the proviso that you let me have Alicia go to Barham. So I don't know who thanks who, but I'm, I'm, I'm here. Um, good to be here to share with you. Um, I, was, um, I, I was talking to Paul Downey the other day. Um, some say I'm a lot like Paul Downey, only a lot less troubled. Um, don't, don't tell him I said that. Uh, we're, in, uh, we're in mission month, and that's what I, I really want to, want to share with you, we, with you today. Uh, but I, I just want to uh, give you a heads up on, uh, on this book, uh, Brave, Brave in the Making. Um, and uh, it's, it's written... For, uh, for teenagers, basically. But grandparents, you should be aware of this because grandparents know everything. Uh, teenagers do not ask their parents for any advice because their parents know nothing. Uh, but often they may uh, approach uh, grandparents. Um, and uh, it's a story that's... Uh, it's a book that's written about a lot of real-life stories that have happened um, that you will remember and know about. And from there, the author relates that back to a, to a biblical story and then gives advice to, uh, to teenagers to how, to how to handle life. It's written by the, the, the chaplain at the Creek Street Christian College. Uh, he's been in ministry. Um, he's a passionate young man who's um, like a dog at a bone when it comes to winning a kid to Christ. He really is. And, uh, so, um, and his name's Travis Barnes. And yes, I am related to him, but only by marriage. He's, uh, he's my son. Uh, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, not here, I'm not here on commission, but if you want one of those, you can get them at Kurong for $26 plus postage. If you want one today, I've got a couple with me, I'll give them to you for $18, okay, uh, if you want one of those. Um, it's for those... Uh, who might just be inquiring about Christian faith and uh, just want to know a little more. It's for those who are struggling in their walk with Jesus. It's for those who have known Jesus but now are, are away from him, which just about includes everybody now, uh, if I think I've covered all of, all of the field. So uh, I, I just commend that to you. Um, and if you want to come and see me, come and see me. You don't have to. If you want, want one, uh, come, and, come and see me. All right. Uh, today we want to sort of uh, want to take up a little of uh, the theme of, of Mission Month um, in, in Baptist churches, which is uh, cross the street. How do we do that? How do we cross the street to meet somebody else, to, to share Jesus with them? Now, if you have your Bibles there, you might like to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, maybe you've got a Bible or you've got it on your phone or an app or um, maybe you've just memorised it all. Um, if you turn, turn to that, we will get to John uh, 17 at some point in time. Uh, but when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he, he writes to a, a young in faith, impressionable 
group of people who have come out of or, or are living in the midst of a, a very pagan world, a, a culture that would be uh, a little like ours. In fact, of all the people that Paul writes to, uh, this group at Corinth are probably most like our society today. A group of people who are fighting their way out of darkness um, and wishing to, attempting to, determining to walk in the ways of God, attempting to cross the street to share God's love, his grace with another. And Paul spends a number of pages in his, in his letter defending who he is, defending his call, answering questions, responding to the claims made about him and the gospel. And in verse 9 of chapter 4, Paul addresses, in, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul addresses those who are in the front line of ministry and he says this, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe to angels as well as to men. If you were to read that out of Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the message, it comes out like this. It seems to me that God has put us who bear his message on a stage in a theatre in which no one wants to buy a ticket. It seems to me that God has put us who bear his message on a stage in a theatre in which no one wants to buy a ticket. And isn't that so true? For those who are in leadership, those of us who are fulfilling a ministry, which should include all of us, um, those who know, own the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has put us on a stage in a theatre in which no one wants to buy a ticket. He gets that idea, Paul gets that idea from uh, th that word spectacle from the Greek word, and the Greek word is theatron, from where we uh, get our, our English word theatre. And there are two things that will so easily destroy you in that arena, that area. And it seems we're always fighting that, facing the tension between these, these two forces from one direction or another. At one end of the spectrum, there is the, the danger of the, the intoxication of success, where we start to revel in the glory that should be God's, that should be passed on to him. It's God's delight to use you. It's God's delight to use me. He is the one to be honoured. And so we have the danger of the intoxication of success. At the other end of the scale is the overwhelming enormity of insignificance. The intoxication of success. The enormity of insignificance. Which, oddly enough, we often refer to as failure. Hands up those who have ever experienced... No, don't. Uh, we look around and, and we see perhaps what everybody else is doing or what their ministry is achieving and uh, we think to ourselves, eh, yeah, we've failed. We see others get accolades. We see others attract a crowd. We struggle with the devastation of insignificance. And for us, it seems like God has put us on a stage in a theatre 
where no one wants to buy a ticket. And Paul wrestles with that. And he wrestles with that and the call of God upon his life. And in 1 Corinthians 2, he says this, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I've resolved. I've determined. I've decided I have made up my mind. And we can see a mental process there. A process that arrives at a conclusion. And we see a declaration of purpose from Paul. I am determined. I've made up my mind. I've resolved with an unshakable resolve. I'm driven. I'm focused to do nothing else but to live in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, my Redeemer. God has put us who bear his message on a stage in a theatre when no one wants to buy a ticket. And it was very true for Paul. They tell me that in acting you have to have motivation. I can understand that. I see some of the soap operas on television today and I thought, yeah, some of these people need to learn it because they've got absolutely none. I have determined. I've made up my mind to honour no one else but Jesus. I will not be swayed by what I see around me. My only determination is to make Jesus look good. My motivation is Jesus. The thing that prompts me, that urges me on, is Jesus. Paul's life is lived, it is defined by his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm on a stage, you're on a stage. All of us who own the name of Jesus are on a stage. And it's our job to make the star look good. Jesus is the star. God is the producer. The audience is the world. The stage is our ministry setting. It's where God has placed us. The plot is the redemption of the world through the, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he says at the start of chapter 4 how he intends to do that. He declares that he's going to be faithful to the one who has saved him. And he says, I will complete my mission. And in 1 Corinthians 4 and verses 1 and 2, we read, people should see us as ministers or servants of Christ and stewards. Furthermore, it is required that stewards are to be found faithful. How is one faithful? Well, Jesus probably gives us the best example of that. And in John 17, Jesus is heading to the cross and he prays. And and this prayer has become known as, as the high priestly prayer, the Lord's prayer, as distinct from the Our Father prayer, um, uh, which, uh, yeah, which we refer to as the Lord's prayer. It wasn't the Lord's prayer. It was actually the model he gave us to pray. Um, in fact, he could not pray that prayer. He could not pray, forgive us our sins. So in John 17, Jesus prays and he prays for his disciples, for those who will follow after him, for those who will be on the front line, on the cutting edge. He prays for their safety. And in verse 4 of John 17, he says this, 
I have brought glory to you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Peterson puts it like this. I glorified you on earth by completing what you assigned me to do. I have glorified you. I have brought glory to you. Glory to God. Some of you here may be familiar with the the Westminster Shorter Catechism. For those of you who may have grown up in that particular discipline or denomination, um, there's a, a great line in it that says this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What a succinct statement that is. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What does that mean when we glorify God? It's an interesting term. It's one that comes straight out of the Churchanese Dictionary. We talk about it, we sing about it, we put it on banners. Uh, We even used to put it on bumper stickers. But what does it mean when we glorify God? Well, in John 17, Jesus tells us, I have finished my assignment. I've completed my mission. I glorify God when I do my assignment, when I complete my mission. When I left school, uh, I went to uh, work in a bank, worked in banking for over 20 odd years. I'd like to apologise for that. Uh, certainly not like it is today. Uh, but my, uh, my first, uh, and I, I started working in Geelong where I grew up, my first accountant's position in the bank was in Gippsland and we arrived, small town, uh, it was a wonderful place, enjoyed the time there. And I was the junior accountant, there was the, the manager, there was a senior accountant, his, his next position would be manager somewhere, um, and then we had about eight, eight clerks, and uh, it was a great group of people to work with. Uh, I'd been there about six or eight months, and uh, the, the word came out from head office that we were to do an interim balance, and we did one of those twice a year, we did one at the, the end of the financial year and the end of the half financial year, and then there was one in between those two. So we did that twice a year. And I, I saw the circular come out that say, at the close of business on such a date, we would do an interim balance. I was fine. Also, we, we got a, a, a letter from personnel to say that the senior accountant was to go and uh, relieve a manager somewhere. And so that was fine. Uh, he was to go off. And so um, it was arranged. I would, uh, I would sit in his chair, do his job. And the senior clerk would sit in my chair and do my job and everything was fine. On, on the Thursday, the, the day before he left, I, I sat with the senior accountant. I said, what's in your basket? What's pending? What needs to be done, etc., etc." He said, uh, don't worry about this. This needs to be done. You'll be right with that. And he said, on Monday, you, you'll need to, do the, um, the, you need to do the interim balance. Will you be all right with that? I said, piece of cake. Not a problem. Not a problem at all. And so he left on Thursday night. Friday morning, I, I got the staff together. And I, said, I said, here's our big chance. I said, Monday, close the business. We have to do an interim balance. What I'd like to see, let's set ourselves a target. Let's set a goal. See if we can balance it by lunchtime Wednesday. I know that's a but we'll, we'll work after hours Monday. We'll start early Tuesday. See if we can, we can knock it off by, by Wednesday lunchtime. And we did. Yes. Kick the goal. Terrific. Well done. Uh, we uh, sent the memo off to head office on, on Wednesday. That was great. All done. 
uh, got a memo back from the head office on Friday, which read, great effort, good work, please reread the instructions sent. This was not what was required. Do it again next Monday. <laughs> great effort, good work, but this was not the assignment. I don't get any credit for not doing what God wants me to do. I don't get any credit for doing your assignment. I glorify God when I do what he wants me to do. I don't honour God by hijacking your ministry because that's not the assignment that he has for me. It doesn't matter how well you do what you do do if you don't do what you should do. I have completed my assignment. I have glorified you, Jesus said. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, people should see us as ministers or servants of Christ and stewards. Furthermore, it's required that stewards be found faithful. Now, both those words, ministers or servants and stewards, uh, servants and stewards, are words that could be translated into, into the, back into the original Greek as, as slaves, being in the service of another. We are servants. The word Paul uses to describe the servant is not the word that he normally uses. Normally, when he describes the servant, he uses the word diakonos, from where we get our English word deacon. But here, the base word he uses means to row, and the prefix means under. So we have an under rower. So he describes a particular servant or a slave as an under rower, as in a slave in the belly of a ship under the rowing, under the deck rowing. Now, you may have seen films like uh, Ben-Hur or uh, Cleopatra uh, where there have been uh, rows and rows of slaves under the deck rowing to keep this uh, monstrosity moving. And they always hated it when Cleopatra wanted to go water skiing. Uh, and, and Paul is saying people ought to look at us and see us as servants, as under rowers. There are scenes that, scenes that we will be involved in, in this stage, in this production that we're involved in, where we're hidden away in submission, rowing, making things happen just hidden away. And people ought to look at our lives and see us as servants of God in that light. So what do they see that will give, that, give them that impression? Well, when you are rowing, you are facing where you've come from. We've come from there, we're going there. When you are rowing, you are rowing towards a destination that's behind you. So people ought to look at us and see as we live our lives that we are in God's service how would they conclude that? Well, when you're rowing, as a servant of God, you do not determine the direction that you go. You do not determine which port you will land at. You don't make decisions whether we go left or right, port, starboard, uh, faster, slower, stop, whatever. We don't make those decisions. There's an old hymn that uh, says, uh, uh, I think it's called the old, old Ship of Zion, and it asks the question, who's the captain here? And the answer comes, the captain is King Jesus. And we are to function as under rowers 
who do not determine the destiny of their lives, but live in the trust that the captain of the boat, King Jesus, has it all in hand. And that's what it's like being on the front line. For we are servant leaders. In leading, we serve, and in serving, we lead. Our destiny is part of the call of God upon our lives. And we live in relationship to him who leads us into our future. And Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 2 and says that we're also stewards. And that word comes, word stewards comes from, from the Greek word oikos, O-I-K-I-S, meaning to manage a house, a steward, a servant with responsibilities, oikonomos, from where we get our English word economics. We are serving and managing in someone else's house. And people should see us as ministers or servants and stewards. And furthermore, it is required that the stewards be found faithful. In slavery, there there, have often been uh, more than one class of slave. There have been slaves who've been uh, slaves, uh, servants who've been, uh, even had a unique relationship, uh, bordering on friendship with the master. Uh, And a show like Downton Abbey, uh, Downton Abbey portrays that just a little. The master of the house would uh, often go out for the day into town, do business or whatever, return at night wanting to know, has the steward been faithful? Has the task assigned been accomplished? It may have been something specific. It may just simply been, has the evening meal been prepared? Has the steward been faithful? Our master is returning and he wants to find that his servants have been faithful. Paul said, I've determined... I've resolved to honour Jesus. All, and I do that as I consecrate myself to the one that I serve, my master, King Jesus. Paul says in Romans 12 and verse 1, Offer your bodies to God, holy and acceptable to him as a living sacrifice. This is our worship. When we present ourselves to God uh, as an act of consecration, we give ourselves to God to be under rowers, to be faithful stewards. In the Old Testament, when uh, people brought an offering, a sacrifice, they would place that in the hands of the priest and the priest would receive the gift on behalf of God. When we give ourselves as a living sacrifice, we place our hands, we place our lives in his hands. We place our giftedness, which comes from him, back into his hands. We place our future, our destiny into his hands. It is not totally his until I take my hands off it and we declare it to be his. A trumpet in my hands means torture for you. But a trumpet in the hands of James Morrison brings the music alive. You see, it all depends on whose hand it's in. A football in my hand is worth about $150, but a football in the hands of the great players, can be worth millions. You see, it all depends on whose hand it's in. Spit and dirt in my hands means dirty hands, but spit and dirt in Jesus' hands means the blind man sees. A handful of nails in my hands means you'll end up with a handful of bent nails. But nails in Jesus' hands means release from our past, from our sin, from our guilt, and a life that is now worth living because it all depends on whose hand it's in. 
Your ministry in your hands will achieve very little. But place your ministry in Jesus' hands and watch lives being changed and made into new people, new creation. You see, it all depends on whose hand it's in. This week, as you cross the street, as you go to work, you go to school, you go to the letterbox, wherever it is, place it in Jesus' hands and watch what Jesus can do. Let's pray together. Father, today I want to say thank you that you are the one who's taken us and you've made us brand new people, that you've equipped us to live in a world on a stage in a theatre where no one wants to buy a ticket. But Father, we want to declare today that our aim and our purpose is to glorify and honour you. So Lord, today I say thank you for all my friends here and I ask that you would bless them as this week, as this month, in the days that are ahead, they seek to cross the road for you to share your love and your grace with those that you bring across their path. And for that I say thank you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.